Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today you'll be hearing part two of the murder of Scott Guy. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Just to recap, in part one, we talked about how 31-year-old Scott Guy was found dead at the end of his driveway on July 8, 2010. Detectives theorized the killer closed Scott's gates so he'd have to stop his truck and get out. Then they waited near the fence in the darkness to ambush Scott as he headed to work. Sometime between 4.43 and 5 a.m., Scott drove down his driveway in the pitch black heading to the milking workshop. As he got to the end of his driveway, he noticed that the gates were closed. Scott stopped his ute or truck, then jumped out and opened the gates. It was then that he was shot twice by an assailant with a shotgun. Detectives didn't have any immediate suspects, and Scott didn't have any known enemies, and he hadn't been having an affair. Neither had his wife, Kylie and neither of them were into any shady business dealings. The only concerning thing detectives found in Scott and Kylie's past was that in 2008 and early 2009, they'd been the victims of arson and vandalism. Both cases had gone unsolved. Thinking the arson and vandalism might be connected to Scott's murder, detectives decided to go public with the information in February of 2011, seven months after Scott was killed. They asked anyone with information to please come forward. It wasn't long before a tipster called police to say that the handwriting in some of the graffiti looked like the handwriting of one of their former employees, Callum Bow. On April 3rd, detectives went to interview Callum. He immediately admitted to the arson and vandalism. Callum told detectives that he'd done it with none other than Ewan McDonald, Scott's brother-in-law whom he had known since he was a teenager. Detectives knew Ewan. He'd been interviewed multiple times in July of 2008. During those interviews, Ewan talked about how there had been some tension between him and Scott in the past, but things were much better in the year prior to Scott's murder. Detectives no longer believed Ewan's story. They felt like Callum's admissions were the final puzzle piece they needed to solve Scott's case. They theorized that because of the tension, Ewan devised a plan to drive Scott and Kylie off of the farm with arson and vandalism. But when that didn't work, Ewan moved on to plan B, which was murdering Scott. On April 7, 2011, just four days after detectives interviewed Callum, they brought Ewan to the station for questioning. At first, detectives asked Ewan if he had any involvement in the arson and vandalism. Ewan lied and said that he didn't have anything to do with either. After a few hours of listening to Ewan's lies, detectives revealed that Callum had already confessed to the crimes. At that point, Ewan broke down and admitted to his role in the vandalism and arson. According to Stuff, Ewan said he burned the old house down because he thought it would be funny. It wasn't anything malicious, but last I checked, there's nothing funny about it, but what do I know? The vandalism, on the other hand, was malicious. Ewan explained that he wanted to vandalize Scott and Kylie's new home because he was angry at Scott. Ewan said, I was still holding a bit of a grudge. I was disappointed. It wasn't a fair partnership just with the hours I had to work, and I didn't get to spend as much time at home with the kids, whereas Scott got a lot more home time. To me, it just felt like I was working my arse off and it wasn't equal. 
Detectives asked if Ewan had killed Scott out of anger, and Ewan said no. He had nothing to do with Scott's murder. He told detectives, I wouldn't take someone's life. I've never been that extreme. The questioning continued, but no matter what detectives said to Ewan, he maintained his innocence. Detectives didn't believe a word Ewan was saying to them at this point. Their theory was still that Ewan tried to drive Scott and Kylie off the farm with arson and vandalism, and when that didn't work, he killed him. According to Stuff, detectives theorized that Ewan knew Scott had to be at work at 4.50 a.m. on the 8th, so at some point before then, Ewan grabbed the farm's shotgun and rode his bicycle over to Scott's house, which was around a mile away. Once he was there, Ewan closed the gates at the end of Scott's driveway so Scott would be forced to exit his ute. Then Ewan waited for Scott to leave work. After Scott drove to the end of the driveway and got out of the ute to open the gates, Ewan shot him with the shotgun twice. He then picked up the shotgun shells and walked over to make sure Scott was dead. Then Ewan got back on his bicycle with the shotgun and rode back to his house where he got ready for work. He changed out of the clothes he'd murdered Scott in and at some point disposed of those clothes along with the shotgun shells. He cleaned and broke down the shotgun, then put it back in the farm office. He returned his bike to the garage, and after that, they theorized that Ewan walked to the nearby milking workshop to unlock it. He turned the alarm off at 5.02, then began working as if nothing happened. If we're to believe what multiple witnesses said about hearing shots at 5 a.m., that would mean that Ewan had to have done all of that in two minutes. Following the interview, Ewan was officially taken into custody and placed in a cell. Later that day, he was charged with murder, which he pled not guilty to. Ewan was also charged for the crimes he'd committed with Callum. He quickly pled guilty to those charges. However, he wouldn't be sentenced for those until after the murder trial. According to Stuff, after Scott's father Brian found out that Ewan had been arrested, he went to the police and told them about something he had done right after Scott was murdered. Brian explained that after he heard Scott could have been shot and not attacked with a knife, Brian went to the farm office to see if the farm shotgun was still there. Brian had previously taken the gun apart and stored it behind a file cabinet instead of the locked safe. Because it was possible that Scott had been shot, Brian was particularly conscious of unlocked firearms. According to the New Zealand Firearms Safety Authority, law states that firearms need to be locked away in a safe, cabinet, container, etc., and the gun needs to be dismantled or rendered inoperable by removing a vital part. So the fact that the shotgun wasn't locked away was a concern to Brian. And can we just take a second to give a round of applause to New Zealand for their gun regulations for a second? Okay. When Brian got to the farm office, he found the pieces of the shotgun were right where he'd left them. It didn't look like they had been moved at all. Brian then locked the shotgun up in the safe. Later, when police asked him about where the shotgun was on the day of Scott's murder, Brian lied and said it had been locked up in the safe. He later testified, I regret that I wasn't completely honest and didn't tell them it was there at that stage. 
If you recall from part one, the shotgun was taken into evidence back in July of 2008. The shotgun could not be confirmed as being the murder weapon, however, it also couldn't be excluded. The day after Ewan was arrested, Brian spoke to the New Zealand Herald. He said there had been some animosity between Ewan and Scott in the past, but he thought everything had been resolved. Brian said the family wants to believe that Ewan is innocent. No part of them could imagine Ewan being responsible. He said, that's not Ewan. We can't imagine he would do such a thing. He's facing some other charges. He's made some bad choices in the past, but we can't imagine he would do that. Brian said Ewan's first court appearance was very, very tough and was worse for the family than the day Scott was killed. They had always hoped the killer was a stranger, but to hear that it was possibly a family member was unfathomable. Brian told the Herald that he had thought about the possibility of Ewan being responsible. He said, but every time I thought of his reaction to Scott's death, I thought, no, that can't be right. His reactions all the way through, he's either innocent or he's very good. If he is guilty, he must be ill. He must be sick. He hasn't shown that he's had any remorse. There's been nothing like that. Brian said Ewan's arrest had been really hard on Anna. She had to explain to her and Ewan's four children that their dad had been arrested for murdering their uncle. Anna told them that Ewan was innocent. Anna later testified that prior to Ewan's arrest, she had no idea what Ewan had been up to with Callum. So, of course, she was shocked when she found out. She had a lot of questions for her husband. Stuff reported that Anna went to visit Ewan several times, asking him questions to try and make sense of everything. Whenever Anna asked if Ewan killed Scott, he would always say no. However, Ewan did admit to his wife that the arson and vandalism on Scott's property was his doing. He said he vandalized their property because he was annoyed at Scott for going home whenever he wanted. Anna later testified that after the vandalism occurred, she noticed Ewan was starting to act warmer towards Kylie. He did things like buy her a silk tree, which is this tall tree with pretty pink blooms that look like pom-poms. At the time, Anna thought Ewan was just trying to make an effort to better his relationship with Kylie, but now she realized that Ewan was feeling guilty about the vandalism and wanted to make up for what he had done. Anna started questioning everything Ewan had ever said to her. Had any of it been true? She honestly had no idea. In the end, Anna couldn't get over how many lies Ewan had told her. She felt like her entire relationship was a lie. So in January of 2012, she went to the jail one last time to let Ewan know she was filing for divorce. Meanwhile, even though Ewan had been arrested, detectives were still investigating Scott's murder. They felt solid in their theory, but there were a few pieces of the puzzle missing. In part one, we mentioned that on the night of Scott's murder, Ewan told the officer guarding the crime scene that there were three Labrador puppies missing from Scott's property. The puppies were never found during the investigation into Scott's murder. With Ewan in custody, detectives obviously believed that he was the one who took the puppies. They figured he did it to make Scott's death look more like a burglary gone wrong, which is an interesting conclusion because sure, the puppies were stolen, but not all of them, and his wallet and iPod weren't stolen, which would have been way easier. The puppies weren't noticed until later. Nonetheless, detectives weren't sure exactly when Ewan took the puppies. According to the Otago Daily Times, detectives thought Ewan could have taken them right after the murder, which meant he had to bike a mile back home with three puppies and a shotgun. 
And unless he's really good at juggling and can do it while riding a bike with no hands and holding a shotgun, that doesn't seem super plausible. The other theory was that Ewan went back at a later time and stole the puppies then. Detectives theorized that Ewan killed the puppies, then buried them somewhere. Another missing puzzle piece were the footprints found at the crime scene. In part one, we talked about how investigators found two sets of footprints at the scene. An expert concluded that one set couldn't be identified, while the other one, which had a unique wavy sole, likely came from a size 9 or 10 Proline W375 neoprene dive boots, which can be used for scuba diving, hunting, etc. Detectives looked into the possibility that those shoe prints belonged to Ewan and found that he had purchased a pair of size 9s back in 2004. He'd been known to wear them on hunting trips between 2004 to 2008. Detectives looked high and low for those dive boots, including Ewan's home and property, but they never found them. They figured he'd disposed of them after the murder. In hopes of finding the boots, puppies, shotgun shells, and more, investigators excavated parts of Beerburn where Ewan had been living at the time of the murder. They found zero things related to Scott's murder. While police continued their investigation, Ewan's defense team was prepping for trial. One of the first things they did was go through the detective's timeline and try and figure out if it was even possible for Ewan to have killed Scott. Spoiler alert, it definitely doesn't seem likely. Detectives believed that the earliest time Scott could have been killed was at 4.43 a.m. We know that 19 minutes later at 5.02 a.m., Ewan disarmed the alarm to the milking workshop. So everything detectives said happened had to have occurred within 19 minutes or less. In those 19 minutes, detectives believed Ewan shot and killed Scott, picked up the shotgun shells, walked over to make sure Scott was dead, then biked a mile back to his own home. Once there, he cleaned himself up and got ready for work. Just after 5 a.m., he left his house and walked to the workshop where he disarmed the alarm at 5.02. During those 19 minutes, Ewan either hid or disposed of the clothes he'd been wearing during the murder, the shotgun shells, and the boots. At some point, he also returned his bike to the garage, cleaned the gun, and broke it down into three parts, then put the gun back behind the file cabinet where Brian had left it. None of what I just said even takes into account that farm worker Matthew got to the workshop between 4.40 and 4.50 a.m., meaning Ewan would have had to have snuck around the property getting rid of evidence as he went without Matthew noticing him. The timeline gets even tighter when you consider that it would have taken Ewan a minimum of four minutes to bike back home from Scott's. So that left him a maximum of 15 minutes to commit murder and clean up his tracks. And what about the missing puppies? Neither of the detectives' theories on what happened made any sense. Let's start with their first theory, that Ewan stole the puppies right after the murder and biked back home with them. If you recall from part one, the puppies had been put up for sale, meaning they would have been around eight weeks old. A quick Google search tells me that the average weight of an eight-week-old Labrador puppy is around 10 pounds. So if we're to believe the detectives, Ewan managed to bike home with 30 pounds of wiggling puppies and a shotgun in tow. 
That seems highly unlikely, especially with how tight of a timeline we're working with, let alone factoring in the sound that would have been coming from three yelping puppies on a bike, something no one reported hearing. The other theory detectives were throwing out there was that Ewan stole the puppies at some point after the murder, which doesn't make any sense either because when could he have stolen them? There was an officer on guard at the scene and Brian and a very pregnant Kylie had to hop over a fence to simply get off the property. Did Ewan somehow sneak around that officer? Why would he do that? And if he did, why would he then tell them that the puppies he just stole were missing? There was another glaring issue with the detective's case. No bike tracks were found at the scene, only car tracks, which had never been identified. And what about the two cars that Matthew had seen coming from the area of Scott's house? What about the two sets of shoe prints found? What about the plural quads a witness reported hearing? All of that seems to point to at least two people being involved. So even if detectives thought Ewan was involved, Ewan and who? It blew the defense's mind that police hadn't identified these cars. One attorney told Stuff, the only way you'd be on that road is if you knew of its existence and had some reason to be there. It's not State Highway 1. One of Ewan's attorneys later told Stuff, to this day, I have no idea how they actually think he did it. Second by second, what time did he get up? How did he avoid Anna waking up? What time did he get up there? Did he kill the puppies before or after? Why would he cycle back along the main road? Why weren't there any bike tracks? Tell me how could he do it? Next, the defense tried to figure out who was responsible for Scott's murder. They found that detectives had a list of 60 persons of interest. The defense narrowed down the list to at least two alternate suspects who should have been looked into further. The first suspect is a tall, unshaven man with dark hair. He has never been identified. The Otago Daily Times reported that two weeks before Scott was murdered, this unshaven man showed up at a home where Scott used to live. The home was actually being rented by David, the man who discovered Scott's body. David recalled the man banging on the door and said he was looking for Scott. When David opened the door, he immediately realized the man reeked of alcohol and cigarettes. David didn't feel comfortable telling the man where Scott had moved to, so he didn't give him any information. Another suspect is a known burglar in the Fielding area. He has been identified. However, he has name suppression, which is where courts in New Zealand will forbid the publishing of a person's name. So I'm going to refer to him as Adam. According to Stuff, Adam was involved in a robbery in the hours before Scott was killed. After the robbery, Adam took his stolen items and traded them for two grams of meth. He then went back out, and it's unclear exactly what he did during that time. The defense found out that Adam was interviewed by police. He told detectives that he was home when Scott was murdered, that his partner could even verify his alibi. Police did speak with Adam's partner, who said she thought Adam got home maybe around 4 a.m., but she couldn't be sure because she was quote-unquote pretty wrecked on meth which sounds extremely reliable, and the last sentence was a lie. Stuff further reported the partner, a well-known criminal who'd been charged with threatening to kill a police officer's family, thought he stayed home after he got home at around four. The next day, the man refused to discuss his activities in front of her. 
But if you think that's suspicious, just wait. Detectives found out that during the burglary Adam committed in the hours before Scott's murder, Adam had stolen a carton of Winfield Gold cigarettes, the same brand as the empty pack investigators found at the crime scene. Furthermore, multiple people told police that they thought Adam was responsible for Scott's murder. According to Stuff, one person said Adam had two 12-gauge shotguns, that he, quote unquote, has a lot of balls. He's hard out into the meth. He's always on it and he gets real aggro. And Adam was known to commit crimes with at least one other accomplice. And as I hopefully have made painfully clear at this point, all signs seem to point to more than one person being involved in Scott's murder. Despite all of this, police cleared Adam as a suspect. They believed his partner when she said she thought Adam got home at around 9 a.m., even though she admitted she had been pretty wrecked on meth. The timeline and alternate suspects weren't the only problems the defense found with the investigation. According to Stuff, about a year after Ewan's arrest, the defense discovered that the prosecution had bugged Ewan's phones and recorded more than 200 calls. The prosecution didn't say anything about the calls until the defense found out and confronted them. After the prosecution finally handed over the recordings, the defense listened to all of them. One attorney told Stuff that Ewan never said anything incriminating in any of the calls. Despite the fact that the prosecution had literally been withholding evidence, Ewan's trial, which had been moved to Wellington due to pretrial publicity, began on June 6, 2012. The trial was followed very closely by the media and the public. According to Stuff, the public gallery was almost always packed. At one point, roughly 100 people lined up to try and get a seat inside. The prosecution told the jury that Ewan seemed perfectly normal to all of his friends and family, but he was not. He was a criminal with dark thoughts. The prosecution spent a lot of time telling the jury about Ewan and Scott's tense relationship. They said Ewan was bitter over the inequality he felt between him and Scott. The prosecution said Ewan began harassing Scott and Kylie in 2008 after the tensions between Ewan and Scott came to a head. He wanted to drive Scott and Kylie off the property, so he committed arson and vandalism. But that didn't work, so Ewan decided to plan Scott's murder. The prosecution said Ewan left his home sometime between 4 a.m. and put on his size 9 Proline dive boots grabbed the farm shotgun and ammo, then biked over to Scott's house. Once he was there, Ewan shut the gates, then waited by the fence in the darkness. At 4.43 a.m., Scott drove to the end of the driveway. After he got out of his truck to open the gates, Ewan shot Scott twice. He then picked up the shells, checked to see if Scott was dead, and biked back home where he got ready for work. At 5.02 a.m., he disarmed the alarm in the workshop. The prosecution said at some point, Ewan stole the three puppies from Scott's property. Then he told police that the puppies were missing, so they would think Scott's murder was a burglary gone wrong. The prosecution told the jury that at some point, Ewan had gotten rid of the puppies, most likely killing them and burying them. He also cleaned the shotgun and put it back in the farm office and got rid of his boots and the shotgun shells. The Otago Daily Times reported that the prosecution told the jury that right after Scott's body was found, everyone at the scene thought Scott had been attacked with a knife and not shot. The prosecution said that when Ewan showed up, 
he slipped up twice and told neighbor David that Scott had been shot. The prosecution said that Ewan was also overheard telling Scott's sister Nikki that Scott had been shot. The prosecution told the jury Ewan knew what killed Scott Guy before anyone else. He knew because he was the gunman. The prosecution said that there was further evidence that Ewan knew about Scott's injuries before anyone else. While Ewan had only gone within 30 feet of Scott's body, he was able to call Brian and tell him that something was wrong with Scott's face. Again, this was something only the killer would know. The prosecution said that while their case was circumstantial, all of the pieces put together proved that Ewan was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Now that you've heard all that, let's buckle up for the defense's argument. The defense told the jury that Ewan was not guilty of murdering Scott. Stuff reported that the defense said Ewan wouldn't be testifying on his own behalf because he'd been interviewed by police for more than 40 hours total. He had said what needed to be said during those interviews, which were, of course, entered into evidence. The defense admitted that Ewan had committed arson and vandalized Scott and Kylie's house. They said he then lied about the crimes when speaking to police. He did this only because he was afraid he would lose his family. The Otago Daily Times reported that the defense said the arson and vandalism were despicable, ridiculous, shameful, and cowardly acts. However, they didn't make Ewan a murderer. The defense pointed out that the arson and vandalizing were directed at property and not people. They said, there is a world of difference. Don't be seduced by the false logic that whoever did the damage committed the murder. The defense told the jury that by the time of Scott's murder, Ewan and Scott's relationship was no longer tense. They'd attended the conference together and were looking forward to bringing in more money on the farm. Multiple people testified that things had seemed just fine between the brother-in-laws. The defense said that it didn't make sense for Ewan to kill Scott. He wouldn't gain Scott's shares to the farm, meaning he didn't stand to make any money financially. Plus, with Scott dead, Ewan would have to work even harder and longer. The Otago Daily Times reported that the defense also questioned why Ewan would kill Scott when he knew Callum would tie him to the arson and vandalism. If he really wanted Scott to die, Ewan could have killed him on the farm and made it look like an accident. It just didn't make any sense for Ewan to commit premeditated murder in the way the prosecution was arguing. The defense also questioned why Ewan would slip up and tell people at the crime scene that Scott had been shot. They informed the jury that no one had actually told police that Ewan had supposedly said that until after he was arrested, which was nine months after the murder. The defense then spent a lot of their time dismantling the prosecution's evidence piece by piece, instilling reasonable doubt in the jurors' minds along the way. The defense told the jury there is not simply reasonable doubt in this case, there is an absolute abundance of it. And that is the understatement of the year. The defense pointed out that the prosecution's timeline was completely off. The prosecution was arguing that Scott was killed at 4.43 a.m., giving you in 19 minutes to pull everything off. The defense argued that four of the prosecution's own witnesses testified that they heard shots at around 5 a.m., not 4.43 a.m. So by those accounts, Scott was killed at a time when Ewan was at the milking workshop. 
Furthermore, two of the prosecution's witnesses testified that they heard three shots, not two, like the prosecution was claiming. One witness said she heard three shots in quick succession. Her roommate also testified that he heard three shots. The defense told the jury that three shots in quick succession could not have been fired from the farm shotgun. Stuff reported that the defense had an American shooting champion testify that it would take him seven seconds to fire two shots, reload, and fire a third shot from a shotgun like the one the prosecution said Ewan used to kill Scott. The defense proposed that it was possible a semi-automatic shotgun was used to kill him. They also pointed out that there was nothing linking the farm shotgun to Scott's murder, and there was no evidence that shotgun had ever been moved from where Brian had hit it prior to the murder. The defense also told the jury that the footprints at the scene did not actually belong to a size 9 dive boot. They pointed out that there were between 32 and 33 rows of waves on the plaster impressions of the prints. This meant that the boot was actually a size 11 or 12. A size 9 boot only had 29 rows. And I don't know how you even screw that up. It's literally a matter of counting to 33. The whole thing about Ewan having used these exact boots for years was pretty suspicious, let alone the fact that police couldn't find them, but apparently they weren't even his size this entire time. Furthermore, Anna testified that the last time she saw Ewan's boots was before they moved in 2008. One of the boots was falling apart and had cobwebs on it. She thought she had thrown the boot away when they moved, which could explain why they were nowhere to be found. The suspicious boot was now a trash cobweb boot. The defense told the jury that no bike tracks were found at the crime scene. However, there were car tire tracks which were never identified. Neither were the two cars seen in the area by farm worker Matthew. The defense said there had never been any evidence tying you into the murder at all. Detectives never found the shotgun shells or the dive boot and clothes Ewan had supposedly been wearing when he committed the murder. And by the way, they never found any Labrador hairs on any of Ewan's clothes either. The defense also told the jury about their alternate suspects, the unshaven man who went to Scott's old house and asked where he was and Adam the burglar. The defense also brought up a third alternate suspect, Simon, who was an assistant manager of Beerburn. If you'll recall in part one, Simon was one of the people working at the shop the morning Scott was killed. Apparently, Simon wasn't the biggest fan of Scott. He testified that he and Scott didn't always get along and he'd complain about Scott to his sister. The defense said Simon had done some suspicious things before and after the murder. Steph reported that the day before Scott was killed, Simon had a job interview, which he didn't tell anyone at Beerburn about. Simon testified that he didn't want to be on the farm long term, so he was looking for another job. He didn't like the milking and preferred working with tractors. It just so happened that after Scott was killed, Simon was made a manager and he got a small pay increase. To add to that, before Scott's funeral, Simon told someone that the one good thing that had come of Scott's death was that he was back on the tractor where he belonged. On the day of Scott's murder, Simon called his partner and said Scott had been shot, which was before anyone knew for a fact that Scott had been shot and not attacked with a knife. And I'm only pointing this out because people came out months after to say Ewan knew Scott had been shot and they felt like he couldn't have known that from 30 feet away. But no one felt like Simon was suspicious when he said it. If you're going to point a damning finger at someone, you have to make sure you're not pointing the same one at someone else 
and not doing anything about it. When the defense asked Simon how he knew Scott had been shot, Simon said he first heard it from farm worker Matthew. However, Matthew testified that he didn't find out Scott had been shot until days after his death. Then, a few days after Scott's murder, an acquaintance asked Simon why Scott had been shot. Simon answered that Scott had made a lot of people angry, which is news to damn near everyone because they couldn't find a single enemy until Callum came out of the woodwork who implicated Ewan for the arson and vandalism. And I feel like I should note here that I'm giving zero passes to Ewan for his shitty behavior, but I'm also giving zero passes to a trial with shitty evidence. The defense told the jury that Simon drove a four-door sedan and had gotten to work early on the morning of Scott's murder, something that never happened because I guess he wasn't a morning person. Simon testified that he never owned a pair of Proline dive boots, but the defense pointed out that he said he wore a size 12, and to top it all off, Simon owned a semi-automatic shotgun. Simon was not on trial here, but the defense was clearly using the Saudi defense, otherwise known as the Some Other Dude Did It defense, which is sometimes a little absurd, but in this case, where the evidence against the defendant is so shoddy, it can be a little compelling. That being said, I don't think that just because Simon preferred tractors, wore a size 12, and owned a semi-automatic shotgun, he's responsible for anything. If that was the only case against him, it'd be pretty close to the strength of the case against Ewan, but let's move on. The defense told the jury that their alternate suspects may or may not be connected, but this trial is about being certain. Can you say, I am certain? I am sure it was Ewan McDonald. In summary, the defense's case was that the prosecution didn't have any evidence tying Ewan to Scott's murder. All they had was a theory. The defense said there was too much reasonable doubt in the prosecution's case for Ewan to be convicted of murder. On July 3rd, after deliberating for 11 hours, the jury found Ewan not guilty of murdering Scott. Stuff reported that as the verdict was delivered, Anna broke down in tears while Kylie ran from the courtroom clutching Scott's cowboy hat screaming, he killed my husband. Although he'd been acquitted of murder, Ewan was kept in custody since he still had to be sentenced for the vandalism, arson, poaching, and all of the other charges he'd previously pled guilty to. Following the verdict, Brian told the media that the family was relieved the trial was over, but now they had no idea who killed Scott. He said, this verdict today will not bring Scott back. This verdict will not restore a father to his children. It will not restore a husband to his wife. It will not restore a son and brother to his family. Which is something I feel like we don't talk enough about. We all want justice for the victims we hear and read about, but justice is a funny word for it. It doesn't undo the damage done. It just punishes someone for doing it. It doesn't undo the pain. The prosecution said they respected the jury's decision. However, Ewan remained their only suspect. There was a rumble of shock and awe at Ewan's acquittal. It seemed like most people were convinced he was guilty. Market research company UMR conducted an online poll after Ewan was acquitted. They found that only 20% of New Zealanders polled believed the jury got the verdict right. Which is an interestingly fucked up thing to do. Imagine you get accused of killing someone, which you say you didn't do, and a jury of your peers decides you're also not guilty, but just when you think it's over, the media decides to poll the world asking how they feel. 
I don't know. It feels icky. I can only remember one other time where the media pulled the public about a case and it was icky then too. But what do I know? In September, Ewan was sentenced to serve five years for the arson, vandalism, poaching, etc. He'd already served 17 months awaiting trial, so he had just over three years to complete. That same month, Anna told 60 Minutes that she didn't know if the jury made the right decision, however, she had accepted it. Kylie, on the other hand, was having a really difficult time knowing Scott's killer was still roaming free. In 2013, she tried to have the coroner open an inquest into Scott's murder, but they declined, saying they believed police had already found the right person. But based on, like, what? They had the chance to prove it, and they did an absolute shit job of it. They came to the trial with a binder full of jello, and the only thing they seemed to have against Ewan in regards to Scott was old beef, vandalism, and arson. Which of course opens a window into whether or not that leads to a motive, but you have to let the evidence answer that question, and zero questions were answered. All signs here point to at least two people being involved. Bikes were heard. Cars were seen. Shoe prints were found. Puppies were stolen. A tire track was never identified. All of those things are plural except for the one tire track. So again, even if they thought Ewan did it, Ewan did it with who? How would they pull it off in two minutes and where are the puppies? Who knew they were selling them? Had anyone contacted them about the puppies previously? Because they didn't just steal one, they stole three. Three puppies don't just disappear. And if someone just wanted to kill the puppies, they probably wouldn't go through the hassle of taking them with them. Following the coroner's decision, Kylie hired a private investigator, Mike Crawford. Stuff reported that Crawford found out that Scott received a series of unidentified phone calls the day before he died. How is this just now coming up? Scott also received one on the day of his murder. Crawford didn't find anything about the calls in Scott's file, so he sent the phone data to an expert analyst. Unfortunately, their results were inconclusive, so we just don't know who called him, how long he was on the phone, whether it was from a landline or a cell phone, what towers it pinged off of, the times of the calls, we know nothing. Crawford also realized two ponds on Scott's property had never been searched. He had the police drain and search the ponds, but nothing of note was found. Unfortunately, after 18 months, Kylie didn't have enough money to continue paying Crawford to look into Scott's murder, money that no family should ever have to worry about spending in the first place. He understood completely, and Crawford told Stuff that he believes Scott's case is solvable, saying, it's probably just missing one or two little pieces. Scott's mother, Joe told Stuff that she believes the truth will come out one day, but she didn't think there was any point continuing the investigation if there was no new evidence. She said they miss Scott every day, but chasing things that might be would be soul-destroying. She added, I still think the story hasn't finished, and I think there's another chapter. We're hopeful it will be resolved eventually. What goes around comes around. Things have a habit of working out at some point. Meanwhile, throughout this entire time, Ewan had been up for parole on four separate occasions. Each time, he was denied. Then, in November of 2005, with six months left to serve, Ewan was granted parole with very strict conditions, including electronic monitoring and a ban from speaking to any victims. In 2016, Ewan finished his parole conditions. That same year, he fell in love with a new woman. They married the following year and settled in Christchurch. 
Following Ewan's release, Brian told Stuff that they had always known this day was going to happen. He said the family hadn't spoken to Ewan and they expected it to stay that way. Brian explained, because of the betrayal that he did against us and others, he is really not part of our lives anymore. Brian and Joe further told the Otago Daily Times that they struggle to forgive Ewan. However, they don't want to be consumed by bitterness or hatred. Joe said, I don't think you can forgive someone whether they apologize or not. Forgiveness is a hard thing. It's a long process. As of this recording, Scott's murder is still considered unsolved. His case remains open but inactive. There are no detectives assigned to his case and are still convinced that Ewan was the killer. According to Stuff, they haven't even reviewed the entire investigation file since Ewan was acquitted. One of Ewan's defense attorneys told Stuff that he's convinced police ignored evidence of more likely suspects. The attorney stated, once they found out about the other crimes Ewan was involved in, I think they just closed the door. And after the trial, police simply shut the book and said the jury got it wrong. We got it right. That's the end of it. We've got no continuing interest in this. Brian and Joe told Stuff that they cannot dwell on the fact that nobody has been brought to justice for killing Scott. Joe said, you become caught up in that world of trying to figure it out. You can't go there for mental health reasons. News Hub further reported that while Brian and Joe don't dwell on Scott's death, his memory is alive and well in the Guy household. They think of Scott daily and he often comes up in conversation. He is still a part of the family. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Scott's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. We go live regularly on TikTok to discuss all episodes and any other true crime cases on your mind, so Follow me at the Heather Ashley and tap on the bell icon so you can be notified when we go live. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media. All cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. We are officially at the end of the episode, and it is time to share a review that made my whole day. This one is from Chanel S. Heather Ashley is a victim's advocate slash true crime bestie we all need. Like always, we are all besties here. I appreciate her thoughtful and victim-centered approach to each case she presents. I always appreciate her honest and spot-on commentary throughout. I always find myself saying yes or right? Keep up the unapologetic commentary and excellent coverage of these victim stories. Chanel, you are my favorite person today. Thank you so much for taking the time to do something nice. You are the best and I love you so much. And I will talk to you guys tomorrow. Just not, no, it's not tomorrow. It's next week. Okay, bye.